Welcome to The Regimen, where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and their guests discuss the latest public health issues relevant to all healthcare providers, their patients, and policymakers. Listen to find out how pharmacists and pharmacy students like me can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. My name is Anisha Bhatia, and I'm a pharmacy student in my last year at the University of Rhode Island, working with the Rhode Island Department of Health alongside my professor, Dr. Brapper. And I'm Jeff Bradberg. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice at the University of Rhode Island College of Pharmacy and the academic collaborations officer at the Department of Health. Today we have a really special guest, Dr. The Beauty Aria, PharmD, MPH. Dr. Aria works at the New York Department of Health and is also a clinical professor at St. John's University. She dedicated her career to public health while working in correctional health services. She was donned as the human rights pharmacist by the then assistant commissioner whose career has been dedicated to social medicine. She takes this title as a privilege and responsibility to use her work in dismantling structural racism and bringing social justice lens to pharmacy. Hi, Dr. Aria. Hi, Anisha, thank you for having me. Of course. So today we're going to be talking about decriminalization, and I know this is a very loaded topic, but I guess we can start off with some simplicities. Can you tell us about the differences between decriminalization and legalization? Sure. So I guess just to start out in a very simple way, legalization really refers to essentially a substance becoming permissible by law. So it's just not illegal, um, but decriminalization essentially just removes any criminal penalties or sanctions against a person for, for, for example, carrying a drug, et cetera. So you just, there might be other things like fees and community service and other things associated, but it removes that criminal sort of um, sanction or penalty against the person. And, and why is it important to not have a criminal sanction? Why is that such a, such a bad thing? So I think that there's, this is a multifactorial answer. There's a lot of different reasons in which we in general um, want to move away from this sort of mass incarceration, particularly in the US where we have seen disproportionate numbers of black and brown bodies in um, incarcerated facilities and people who have, who are sort of touched by the legal system. Um, and I think the distinction here is that we call it usually in a legal system, not a justice system, because it's really not producing a lot of justice. Um, and so there's lots and lots of ways in which people who are incarcerated get marginalized. And there's just tons and tons of issues that we now know to be a little bit more at the forefront of the conversation than we knew before. And so what we want to do is understand how we can actually be very person-centered and health-centered rather than just sort of being a punitive system that imposes sanctions and really doesn't result in much justice and much health and rehabilitation. And so we wanna lead this as a people system, right? We wanna be focused on people and getting care to people rather than just being being so harshly um, punitive in our systems. Yeah, I think that's a really great answer. And as you said before, you like to call it the legal system and not the justice system. Because of the legal system leading into that, can you tell us a little bit about the war on drugs and how it all started and where decriminalization kind of comes from? Sure. So I think what's important there is actually I'll plug in the New York Times has a video uh, that was actually done by Jay-Z about the war on drugs that I often sometimes will um, send to my students and show as part of understanding the history of war on drugs. It's beautifully done. And I think it really covers quite a bit. Um, but I want to point out, I think central to this conversation is that 
why we call it the war on drugs, et cetera, is because it's actually been deeply rooted in some pretty oppressive practices. So dating back to like the 1870s, there were a lot of anti-opium laws that were actually established that were directed at Chinese immigrants, right? So a lot of these laws were like essentially uh, rooted in a lot of oppressive activity. And by the time the 1900s came around, we saw sort of these, a lot of like anti-cocaine laws that primarily were directed to, towards Black men in the South. And in the 1910s, 1920s, you saw a lot of emergence of like anti-marijuana laws that again, were directed mostly at Mexican-Americans and immigrants. In the 60s, I think this is what like most people are familiar with. There was a lot of like this association with sort of rebellion, right? And, and use of drugs. But in 1971, uh, Nixon sort of was, I think, most vocal in essentially declaring a war on drugs. And what they, the reason why it sort of started more heavily there that we're most familiar with is that there was a lot of resources that were actually aimed at like mandatory sentences. There were laws that said basically gave no knock warrants, which means you can just like barge into somebody's house and make an arrest. Um, And really it was aimed at a lot of like folks who were quote unquote, on the left with anti-war sentiment and um, particularly on Black folks. And so there was a lot of like arrests that were done during that time, a lot of very vilifying of like moral characters, right, of like drugs. This is also where you saw a lot of like uh, character defamation with like, well, this is your issue. You know, you must have failed your morality if you're on drugs, et cetera. And that's actually also, I think we're... um, I think that's when marijuana actually became schedule one. Remember that from pharmacy school schedule one, like that's pretty serious. And then uh, there in 1972, I think that there was actually a committee that, you know, was sort of formed that actually recommended to decriminalize, but it was sort of fully just ignored. So it's not, you know, it's not like this thing that kind of came out of nowhere. There was a lot of resources in very particular legal activity focused on um, ensuring that, you know, there were these legal sanctions essentially put on. And so you saw kind of a mushrooming of a lot of legal activity against against drugs. And I, I think what's most interesting, I really appreciate that that history. That's really fascinating and still just boggles my mind that we don't teach this in pharmacy school, probably. And, <laughs> uh, um, and we should. And now we have this podcast to do that. But what's also interesting in studying, and you and I both study, um, you know, expanding treatment to medications for opioid use disorder is this is when methadone clinics and methadone maintenance programs came about and actually resources were equally put into treatment facilities. We had more people being treated in the early seventies and Nixon was actually pushing treatment as well as these other you know, problems with punitive behavior. And then when, when Reagan was elected, they sort of decimated the whole treatment right. side and it and exacerbated the punitive side. Yeah, which also then contributed to like a lot of mental health issues, right? Like a lot of behavioral health issues as a society and a baseline sort of rose. Um, And again, you know, to your point, I think that that's the, that's the sort of uh, the racializing of it all, you know, was very, very pronounced during that time. And so that's part, partly also why we have this sort of um, mass incarceration problem where, you know, there are lots and lots of people, like I said, mostly black and brown bodies disproportionately being impacted into the, you know, jails, facilities, prisons, et cetera, that we still see the negative impacts of that to this day and, and likely will continue if, you know, particularly if we don't do something to help reintegrate and again, lead with a system that's more focused on health and people first. One of the big issues that people seem to have with decriminalization is 
if we don't give punishment for drugs, then is that going to increase the use of drugs or have more drug related issues in general? So this is something that we kind of call moral hazard. Can you explain what that is and other examples of moral hazard that we've had in the past? Yeah, and the way I like to discuss moral hazard, what I like to say in the very beginning is just to let everybody know that this is an economic term. It's, it comes from economics. It does not come from like health and public health. And um, although we talk about it quite a bit, but really the idea here is that essentially people have limited responsibility for the risks they may engage in or that they may take and the costs that are created because of those risks, right? So essentially, um, if I don't have to pay for any sort of um, cost that I might create, I can take more risks, right? So people tend to be, for example, if you're if you don't take a lot of risk, great, like everybody wins. But if you do take risk and it didn't sort of result in the best best outcome, then you essentially don't really have to pay for the consequences. And that's what this kind of that's where the economics term comes from. So mostly it's about insurance, right? So if you know that you're covered you're likely to take more risks because you know it, you're covered. If you know that you don't have good insurance coverage, you're probably going to be a little bit more risk averse. That's where this idea comes from. And it's not, um, you know, it's not the first place we've seen this idea come forth and when it comes to people's choices in health. So uh, back in the day, for example, like when seatbelts weren't all mandated to be in cars, we saw this too, where people are like, oh, you're going to put seatbelts in cars and now everybody's going to drive like a, you know, super high speeds because they know that they're protected and won't die. Right. And we now know for most of us who drive around, like that's interesting that they would, you know, partly probably people don't think about worlds where there are no seatbelts, um, children's car seats, right? Like all of these measures that are built in as safety um, when HPV, remember that when the vaccine came out and we were, you know, educating about it, recommending HPV vaccines, you know, we heard this then too. Well, if HPV vaccine is available, 12 year olds are going to be promiscuous, right? And we saw that that's not really the case and evidence doesn't point towards that at all. And it's not such a simple binary that, you know, you protect people, they're just going to go out there and behave irresponsibly. But we have seen that quite as a pronounced argument, especially when it comes to substance use, because there's so much you know, there's still so much stigma, there's so much character sort of uh, defamation pointed to it, and that just complicates the matter. So people love to use that quite a bit. Um, so that's kind of, you know, what I like to say, it's like, that's where moral hazard comes from. But there's not when we talk about substance use, and we talk about harm reduction, the idea here is to exactly reduce harm. We know people are going to be engaging in behaviors that we want to make sure they can engage in those behaviors in the safest manner possible. For example, giving out condoms. We know that people are going to be engaging in sexual activity. And if we can help to limit, you know, the, the risks of STIs, um, you know, that's important, right? And so, it, it abstinence only, for example, is not the most effective way. It's not the only thing that works. And so it's important for us to understand and again, use people first understanding, right? So we accept people as who they are rather than being these sort of judgmental spaces um, where it actually does more harm than good to, to the individuals and, as, and to society as a whole. And I, I think that's the key thing is this is, you know, radical empathy is harm reduction and decriminalization is harm reduction. And Pharmacists are harm reduction in all of these things. There's, you know, moral hazard 
let's just say it does exist and we do see more people use drugs or seatbelts cause people to, it's the classic example, sure. to drive faster, but they're doing it safer, right? right? And we're not trying to reduce the number of people driving cars or the number of people engaging in sexual activity. We're saying, here's this thing. We're going to give you the tools to be, to do it as safe as possible. And, you know, HPV vaccine can remove multiple kinds of cancer if you yeah. reach a population level effect. So it's, it's really remarkable. And I think that's the key, right? Like we're exactly what you said. We're not saying that it's, it doesn't mean that people are not going to tend to take more risks, right? If you know that you work, you have some really great insurance that covers, uh, I don't know, like orthopedic injuries or whatever, right? Like, yeah, maybe you'll go skiing more often, right? Maybe if I know that I'm not covered by, you know, whatever, by my insurance, maybe I will engage in risk a little bit less. And those are true. It drives human behavior. Sure. But we don't want to cast moral judgment on people for doing things. Right. And I think that that's, it kind of promotes this very self-righteous, you know, infallibility almost that removes the humanity. And it's not, you know, it's not okay. Like we need to understand that people may engage in behaviors that may be risky, but can we hold a, you know, hold space for that to be, um, to be much safer and to, to result in better outcomes. Yeah, we can. And speaking of better outcomes, what are the outcomes of incarceration in general relating to public health issues? Um, probably needs another podcast of its own, but. <laughs> right, I mean, mass incarceration, uh, like I said, disproportionately impacting, particularly in the US, I mean, it's, it's a deeply rooted sort of very multifactorial issue that impacts people in many, many, many ways. There are, you know, facilities, incarcerated facilities are what we sort of group as congregated care facilities, right? Lots of people in small spaces, chances of outbreaks, access to care. What if they need emergency medications, right? Some facilities, yeah, are designed to have healthcare on hand. Some facilities, you know, we can provide substance use treatment, right? But there's a lot of, there are a lot of nuances there that I think unless you've actually been at these facilities and understand how the power dynamics work, when you understand how everything from when a person gets um, prearranged to arranged to showing up at a facility, to staying there and just their everyday experiences and how nuanced they are in terms of power dynamics, in terms of so many things that could go wrong in any given hour, any given day. Um, and I don't mean wrong in terms of like a fight breaks out or whatever. I'm talking about wrong in the actual system that is designed to care for these individuals. So if you don't get meds delivered on time, if you don't get the right med, if you don't get your concern heard that could potentially be life-threatening and it takes three hours for somebody to respond, et cetera. There's a lot of issues when it comes to access and just decent sort of human rights and behavior in these facilities. Um, I've been very fortunate in, in the time that I was working with Correctional Health Services in New York. Um, just, I think it taught me way more than I ever contributed to that space but just deep respect and love and admiration for anybody who's in that space, because there's just so many dynamics that you observe, just how people, you know, what's the, what's the differentiation between Department of Corrections and the Department of Health? Like where, as a healthcare provider, when you're there for people versus, you know, people who are there as wardens and, and the power, I mean, I cannot stress power dynamics enough. Um, there's just a lot of nuanced conversations there. And 
All that to say that it's not the most humane treatment. Um, and it's not, you can't sweep it aside and say, well, you know, people did wrong. They deserve to be there. And that's what you get. Again, that's a very like analytical way of thinking, very westernized, um, doesn't focus on relationships. You know, and here I'm kind of referring a little bit more to restorative justice, where it's all about the connections and a very different way of dealing with um, with things than is like a very punitive, harsh system here. Uh, that really results in not only a lot of human rights being um, being violated, but also further marginalization, further decreased access to prop proper healthcare, um, lots of issues in general with congregate care facility in that specific uh, area, and then also like sometimes lots of lapse in treatments for people who need um, need care, and you know equally as important is also thinking about reintegration back into society. You know, once people are out and what kind of stigma this holds and um, there's a whole epi, you know, version of this where we can see how difficult it can be and how long lasting the negative impacts of incarceration can be on a person, not only just personally, but also professionally, right? Like, and how far reaching those impacts can be. Um, so I think that there's a lot of issues there, but certainly, De the concept of and the conversation, excuse me, on decriminalization lends itself to improving those conditions as well and mitigating some of the negative impacts that have come out of mass incarceration. And I, I have a sort of a recent, hopefully not too tan tangent here, but when you talk about far reaching consequences, one of the things that I do with my public health students is we watch testimony of different bills. Mm. And there was a there's a bill in Rhode Island um, on expungement of crimes. And I saw this, this just amazingly compelling testimony of this person who said, I had a criminal record. Um, it never prevented me from having a job because that was some of the other things that, again, people think that going to jail is restorative when it clearly is not. And then if you have medical problems that that's come right. out of it or get more severe, I mean, that's a whole, that is a whole other podcast. But he said he literally broke down and the rep had to come over and like, and, and literally hug him and say, just tell your testimony, just tell your testimony. And he said, I was fine. I was fine with my job. I went to college. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I own my house, but when my, uh, I wanted to chaperone my kid's trip and I mm. had to do a background check. And he says, you see this principal's eyes look down on me now. And he was a man of color, you know, so that plays into that, of course, into society's impression of criminals and crime and, and, and jail stays. And, um, and it just it just really has stuck with me to see this person break down just because now it isn't that he can't do the chaperone. It's that now now his kid's school knows about that and how and again, the whole point was decriminalization is sort of the preventative step. But we also need expungement as part of these laws to say, you know, OK, fine. You know, you we had these laws that a lot of us agree are not effective and uh, are uh, have lots of disparities in how they're enforced. Uh, but we also need to expunge these records because they're not not doing anything other than harm. 100%. And I think that's the point, I think, partly of this conversation is to understand that there's it's a multifactorial approach, right? Like you can't even, you know, well, I know we'll get into safe, you know, safe injection sites and all that. None of these interventions alone by themselves exist in some sort of silo that can miraculously do anything. And I think if I can just send any message, this is my central message is that it's, it's, it's reflective of the, of the macro sort of problems in society. None of us individually, first of all, we don't get to where we are by ourselves and we certainly are not going to do anything helpful. That's going to be just by ourselves. And I think that's has to be 
kind of that collective strength and that collective healing has to be at the core of all of these conversations, particularly in public health, because you're not a lot of, you know, it's, it's, it's many times just as simple as a scarlet letter that has a lot of harm to it. Um, that really kind of promotes this fantasy of like how people don't make mistakes or they're not allowed to, or somehow if they do, it reflects more on their character than really anything else. And I would say hope and redemption are central to civilization, right? That's how we evolve as humans. And that's really what we have. And I think that a lot of these things, these systems that we have in place perpetuate some of these um, ongoing issues and make them even deeper and harder for us to actually unlearn because of how deep they run in media and pop culture, et cetera. So um, 100% agree that it has to be a multifactorial approach. One thing that I just want to kind of leave this topic with is when people leave prison, their mortality rate is the highest in the first two weeks of leaving. So if that doesn't say something in itself, then there's an issue. But- uh, and there's actually a higher mortality rate from prisoners versus non-prisoners. So again, if people's, if society's goal is you've done something bad, right. go into this. And it's, it's this, it's this presenteeism or, or survivor's bias. You know, we see this in 12 step programs where they're like, I did abstinence and I'm here. So you should too, but you're not seeing all the people who died right. who needed medication to survive. And so you say, well, these people went to jail and they did fine. It's like, you're not seeing all the people who whether it's two weeks after or the fact of just being incarcerated itself. Well, um, I think it's a simplified, oversimplified way of like just reducing everything down to a binary, right? It's like, it's either this or that. And it's like, that's not how life works. That's not how medicine works. We don't teach, treat, you know, hopefully we don't teach our students that, you know, one drug therapy is not the only drug therapy. Um, and I think there's a lot of gray and we have to, as a society, understand that we need to invite complication. We need to invite complexity. And that's, you know, again, that's who we are. None of us are holier than thou, better than thou. We're not infallible. Matter of fact, we all will make mistakes, but the more we can understand that that's an invited complexity, the better we can handle all of these things, right? Like it's not a zero sum game where it's, you're either this or that. Of course, there are going to be people who defy the odds, right? And who, you know, sort of make better. But what irks me about that conversation so much is like, well, look at, look at this person, they beat the odds. And I'm like, can we just go change the odds? We do not need to constantly tell people to beat the odds. And it's, that's the message. And it makes you feel like a piece of crap if you don't. Right. And that's, you know, there's, it's a journey and it cannot be simplified to just a binary sort of outcome. That's not how life works. Right. And you were talking earlier about safe injection sites and harm reduction. I know this could be also a whole nother <laughs> topic. We should just start a series on decriminalization. But can you talk a little bit about the impact of safe injection use sites? And is this a good model? Is this somewhat, something that everyone should be doing? Yeah, so I want to clarify, I think, um, for those of us who may not be as familiar, the safe injection sites are, you know, just sites, places where people can go and um, and use drugs under the supervision of either somebody, they don't have to have like a person supervising them, but it's just um, essentially it's a place where it's just a non-judgmental place where you're accepted for who you are. And it's, again, a person first um, sort of environment where you can go and you have safe needle um, disposal. You know, there, it's a facility where you can go and um, essentially engage in injection use that's um, 
that's just in the safety of a, of a place that's not going to be judgmental towards you. So there are about, I think, almost 100 sites around the world um, currently, mostly like Europe, Canada, and Australia. And um, some of the things that I guess we should probably just kind of let go of the myths is that it's either, again, that binary sort of thing, it either works or it doesn't, it depends on what your definition of works or doesn't work is. Um, but some of the benefits that people have seen are essentially that it promotes safer conditions. Um, it actually, a lot of the sites there has been evidence about reducing overdose deaths and overdoses. Um, there actually is even a better access to healthcare services. So a lot of um, individuals may feel they, they actually start, end up starting detox, for example. And, you know, some people have a hard time wrapping their heads around that and say, well, what is, what does that mean? Like you're actually, why would they want to do detox? And it's like, well, you're, you're in a care facility essentially, right. Where you're not judged for your choices, but you do have options. That's the point is that you go in there and you know that it's going to be non-judgmental and safe for you to use, but there's no like punitive action tied to it. And so the idea is that a lot of people get the support that they need. And potentially if you're an individual who feels that it's um, that it's a decision you want to make to move into, you know, initiating detox. So that's something you can do and have access to. So it actually has resulted in better access to healthcare services in general. There's also, there's been found to have less outdoor drug use because now you have a place where people can go and comfortably, um, comfortably use. And there's really no evidence to show that there's been any sort of negative impact on like crime or drug use, frankly. And so, you know, sometimes people will think, well, if you're going to invite people to come into these places, oh my gosh, it's going to have this spike in, you know, and I'm using air quotes, like the wrong kind of people hanging around here, et cetera. And it's like, that's just not shown to be the case. Having said that, I don't want to paint some picture of unicorns and rainbows where it's like, this is the only salvation. So like what we're talking about, the theme that's kind of recurring here is that you need a multi-pronged approach. I, you know, am, I'm a believer in safe injection um, sites, and I do believe that they do a lot of good. You know, it's hard to like do a randomized control trial, right? Like, cause it's kind of unethical to put people in better places than others. And what if it's somebody who does need help with um, a potential overdose, it's unethical to say, well, nope, you're not in the treatment arm where I can, you know, save your life. And so it's harder to do that. And that's why a lot of these studies you see are going to be more observational in their methodology where they followed people over the course of a long run. But, you know, to, to reiterate, safe injection sites are a non-judgmental place where you put people first. And it has been, they have been shown to have lots and lots of benefits, including safer conditions, uh, redu reduction of overdoses, better healthcare services, um, even like I mentioned, increased likelihood of uh, individuals starting detox. Um, but we do like need more research, right? They've not traditionally been studied particularly here. And so you can't really be just on like the polar sides of this conversation. Like they either, you know, put on a pedestal or they're horrible. It's a continuum. And as we've talked about, there's a multifactorial approach, one of which is a safe injection site and opening more safe injection sites. And I do think that they're, they're very, very beneficial. And I would just clarify a couple of things is that, you know, we want to mitigate, we want to reduce ODs, but there's been zero at the right. hundreds of sites. I mean, there's just been no overdose. Zero deaths. Yes. And there've been dozens of people saved at the two overdose prevention. Another term is overdose prevention sites, which a study showed is more palatable to the public and instead sure. of supervised <laughs> injection. And then there's also people consume drugs in many ways. And so sometimes they're called supervised consumption sites. And in 
Rhode Island are regulations for state authorized, state licensed harm reduction centers is what we're calling them, uh, was approved three days ago. So there'll be some harm reduction centers opening up and with the, hopefully we'll be researching, you know, who comes, what's the best way, what's the interaction with law enforcement and all those types of things. So, yeah. And there's a lot of research I think that's underway currently as we speak, and this is February, 2021, right. That then more and more of this is being studied. And I think, Oh, 2022, just kidding. <laughs> Missed a year on the pandemic. Um, but yeah, so to reiterate that there, there's still more, more of these being studied and also tied to like outcomes, right. To show that there are some quantitative outcomes associated as well. And it's, it's hard I think to enter into that conversation with just the mentality of again, being that binary outcome. So, you know, it's one approach, it has shown to be very beneficial. Um, It uses a style that's very restorative in its approach, um, particularly with harm reduction, that it's people first, you're accepted for who you are, and it's not, you know, nobody's casting sort of a scarlet letter on you in that moral judgment. And I think it goes hand in hand with decriminalization of possession and use because nobody's going to go to a place exactly. to use drugs unless you know you're not going to be arrested, right? That's, that's exactly that's the, right. That is the key thing. You can open it. You could say the state sponsors it, but if you're going to get arrested, you know, so, so again, all these things work, like you said, in a Venn diagram of, of all, yeah. the, all these different things. And also like how much police presence there is outside of that site too, because there's, as we know, you know, you can go in and do you know, be, be not judged, but then as soon as you leave, there are concerns that people have. Um, and a lot of times, again, the intersectionality, right, that Venn diagram, where a lot of times it's, what if I'm a person of color? What if I'm a woman? What if I identify as, you know, anything but a, a binary sort of gender identity, which is male or female? What if I have any other marginalized identity? And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of things there. There's a lot of risk and factors involved that, again, multifactorial. Can't just, just do one thing and say, see, it didn't work, because there's so many other um, things in the continuum of this that you need to kind of have in place for it to actually be restorative, for it to be a place where you can put the person first and and their healthcare, frankly. Right. That's a really long and intuitive answer, but I think it explains to everyone really well the background of harm reduction. And we could probably go on and on about this, um, but we should kind of circle back to decriminalization and some states that have already implemented this, which I honestly did not know in the beginning that states have already kind of gone through decriminalization. So can you talk a little bit about some states that have done it and put it into place and whether there's data on the outcomes? So I think that, so there's about 21 states in the U.S. that have um, decriminalized and use and possession of marijuana very specifically. Oregon in 2020 right, one of these pandemic years, 2020, um, end of 2020, I think it was, actually became the first state to decriminalize use of, uh, decriminalize any uh, possession of any illicit drugs, which is, you know, and they borrowed theirs from like Portugal and the Netherlands. And, and one of the things that's a very big sort of, again, the, the impact down the road is that it really has cut down on arrests and on incarceration, right, which we know, again, to ha- be this age-old problem. And so it's really important for us, again, to understand that decriminalization doesn't mean that you know the drug is all of a sudden illegal, right? Because that's legalization. But it's important to understand that it takes away any 
criminal sanctions and criminal penalties. So you could probably, you know, I think that states still have like laws about fines or community service and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't put you in a facility that then determines very negatively a lot of the trajectory of your life. So we, you know, hopefully we can keep it going, um, but it does impact sort of how we view drug use. It impacts how we use substance use in general. Um, and frankly, ties very much into our role as pharmacists. So a lot of the, a lot of our pharmacists that we know of, our colleagues, um, interns, right? They're engaged in actually some version of harm reduction, where you might see um, needle exchange laws within your state, where people can come in and get clean needles. Um, and again, you know, this doesn't mean you can assume exactly what they're for, right? Uh, it could be a whole number of things, a bunch of things. But I think that what pharmacists need to also then remember is that to an extent, they are part of public health um, to a large extent, even though they may not formally call it that. And to, to an extent, they're also part of harm reduction activities, even if it you know throws us into a conversation about what it is and do I want to participate in this, et cetera, and how I presume, you know, have assumptions about things or preconceived notions that I need to either unlearn or clarify. So I think that what you're seeing largely is that pharmacists, particularly if I may segue into the, the role of the pharmacist, their, our primary job is to care for our patients, right? And what this entire conversation has been about is using a healthcare-led, a person-led, a human-led um, system that focuses more on getting care, getting access, and getting help to patients rather than just saying, you're bad, we're going to punish, which really has not, as we have seen through much and much and much of evidence, has not resulted in proper care and has not resulted in good outcomes for people and actually very much results in negative outcome. So I think that's one of the things we need to keep in mind, um, that it's it's not just saying we need one or two interventions or even two of them together, is that we need to change this paradigm and this cultural understanding and norm of what it even means to care for our patients. And, you know, harm reduction still, I think, and Jeff, you know this, right, it tends to, in our conversations with our colleagues sometimes, be so charged by this sort of moral heaviness of, you know, this is bad people or whatever, but it's like, listen, it's, it's us caring for people, right? It's, I'm not here to pass judgment on my patients. I don't know all of my patients' narratives and stories, but I can't assume that the only story that I see in front of me, it's part of the story, but it's not the only story to them. And that's the key principle um, that we need to think about in decrim. It's not, it's, it's reducing this world of sanctions and punishment that we know to be harmful to people and their health and their families and their futures. Can we just not engage in it so punitively? Can we move away from that and actually normalize a conversation on that? Yeah, I, I always say that, you know, pharmacists are all harm reductionists because if you have a legal prescription, our job is to make sure you take it for whatever disease and that you're aware of the harms and we help you minimize the harms. Take with food. Hey, take in the that's morning, true. Right. But if you have an illegal prescription, right, you're diverting an invented word by the DEA, right. right? And if you're using cannabis, if you're using, you know, heroin or fentanyl or all these things, why is it that, you know, those are all psychoactive, you know, again, like 40% of people don't realize that heroin and oxycodone are derived from the same thing. <laughs> and I think that that's the sort of thing to be like, oh, well, wait a second. 
So somebody comes to me with an oxycodone prescription. I tell them all these problems. Why can't you be telling that to the person with heroin? Oh, they also are injecting it. So why don't you sell them sterile syringes, you know, so that they don't have HIV. So then you have to counsel them on their HIV drugs for life. If they have access to them, if, 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 you know, our focus, you know, part of public health is prevention yeah. and harm reduction is just another way to say prevention of harm. I think. Yeah. It's like secondary, what do we call secondary prevention? prevention. Right. I mean, that's the thing it's, and it's, and you know, the other thing I forgot to mention when you asked about outcomes, um, people have seen HIV rates go down, incidents of HIV go down, hep C, right? Other um, other uh, diseases that you can get from sharing needles, right? For example, other illnesses. And so it's really important for us to understand that you're not just focused on the one behavior and potentially mitigating negative impact from maybe one or two things. It does have an impact largely overall. And, you know, that it's a really great point um, because like when we even look at like SSRIs or other medications that have some pretty serious side effects, you know, and it's, it's fine. We just give them a little leaflet that nobody reads and, you know, somehow it's going to miraculously be okay. But when it comes to humane treatment, you know, people get sometimes up in arms about it. And I think it's really important to remember the humanity, right? We all came to this profession, um, to at least have some sort of impact on our patients, at least have some sort of, you know, version of our story that lends itself to saying, I want to help patients, I want to help improve healthcare outcomes, etc. And this is part of that conversation. You know, you have to have that conversation. And, and I think even if you, you know, we, we can go on and on about how society help, makes us view criminals as less than human. So therefore, them going mm. to jail and having poor health, health outcomes maybe isn't your number one thing. And that's, an unfortunate yeah, it places value on people, right? places value, but yeah. even people who are say, well, I want this person to go to jail, or I'm not going to sell these syringes, or I'm not going to talk to you about drug testing or whatever things that you can do is that, you know, around supervised consumption centers, when they're instituted, there's actually less crime. Correct. <laughs> so if you're worried about crime, just as a community thing, while wow, there's all this crime by providing harm reduction, you're actually reducing crime. So even if you don't care about humans, but you care about other humans, right? I mean, it's like, I was talking to someone, they, they brought up this exact thing. It's like, well, you got to put them away in like a place, right? And it's like, okay, there's a lot of triggering things here, right? But I was like, okay, well, you're, you're, you know, quote, unquote, putting them away in these centers that are so detrimental to their health, right? Hippocratic oath first do no harm. Okay, violated. Thank you very much, you know, but at the same time, like by you and for by you saying that you're placing judgment on all these people. And I'm like, can you can I invite you to think about, you know, safe consumption sites as maybe places where people can go and actually get the get the resources that they need and, and you know, get better, right? And be able to engage in behaviors that they're going to engage in anyway, but in a much more humane environment. And, you know, it's, it is, it's, it's a shift in thinking. And I think that so many people are so deep seated in how they view things. And this, again, this sort of moral judgment stuff um, that it, it does, while, while I can have compassion and have that conversation, it is important for all of us to individually reflect on that. And, uh, you know, think of our preconceived notions and where where they come from and how we can unlearn some of them. We always say here at the regimen is like to our guests and to each other is, you know, what's the regimen for decriminalization? And it's, I'm sure we haven't created a lot of radical empaths here or they're already listening. But if people reflect on what we're saying, I, I count that as a win. I, that's yeah. I like what you said is just to say, think about what your outcome is. 
think about where your outlet comes from and take the first step towards perhaps changing how you feel or how you think about things. Do some, you know, go to Drug Policy Alliance, you know, website and read more about it there. Yeah, there's a there's an idea about radical welcoming that I use and there's um, some of us who engage in the arts and, you know, um, that kind of space. It's this idea of basically creating. It's not just having a space where people feel comfortable, but it's having a space where you're actually welcomed and valued. And it's perhaps sounds radical to me. Maybe it doesn't. But I think that that's another way of thinking about this. It's we're not just saying tolerate things and be okay. We're just like welcome other humans who, you know, for whatever reason you feel that they're not either worthy or valued, like, could you change that? Could you challenge your assumptions around this? And I think um, particularly poised are our next generation of pharmacists who have seen and have kind of lived through in a very like much younger phase of their life, the convergence of the pandemic and, you know, social media presence and the social uprisings and understanding how we can even have a discussion on structural racism and how it impacts all of our sociopolitical economic systems that perhaps we ought to also be learning from them, you know, like we have to learn from them about how this impacts them and engage them in this discussion where we invite and welcome their opinions and invite them to think of this differently. So hopefully when all of you graduate, that harm reduction won't be such a contentious topic in pharmacy. It won't be such a radical idea that we can actually all work together to, to get better policy going. You know, at the, at the policy level, I mean that very specifically so that it's not just little interventions here and there, it's actually changing the tide. It's changing the paradigm of how we even view this um, and be more patient-centered and be more health-led. Um, so we're not just sitting here casting judgment and punishing people that we're actually welcoming their value into, into humanity. I think that's a really good note to end this episode on. So thank you for being a guest on The Regimen, Dr. Arya, and we hope to talk soon. Please follow our Twitter at PharmD Pub Health. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.